Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Jeannie Howard, Professor Emeritus at Illinois State University, for a discussion on meeting the needs of adopted families. Part two will be released on July 19th. Hello out there, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, bringing you another episode today. We are going to be exploring some of the services that are most helpful to adoptive families in this episode. I have the honor of being able to interview Jeannie Howard, about this topic, and I'd like to share some information about her background with you. Dr. Howard has conducted research and training on adoption and foster care issues for over 30 years with a special emphasis on children adopted from foster care. She's Professor Emeritus at Illinois State University, where she headed the Center for Adoption Studies for 15 years. She also served for almost a decade on the research as the research and policy director for the Donaldson Adoption Institute, researching and authoring numerous reports that have had a positive impact on adoption-related law, policy, and practice. Dr. Howard has published several books, The Needs of Adopted Youth and Preserving Troubled Adoptions, as well as many articles and monographs on adoption-related issues, including finding adoptive homes for older adopted youth, the need for a range of post-adoption services, policies, and practices. She has done articles related to serving gay and lesbian-headed adoptive families, articles about the overrepresentation of African-American youth in foster care, and restoring access to birth certificates to adult adoptees, racial and adoption identity, and the impact of the internet on adoption. I'm sure you can tell by all of that, she has studied many different facets of adoption. I'm looking forward to talking with her today about some of the things that she learned from those many years of research that adoptive families need. So stay tuned and she will be coming right up. Thank you to everyone who signed up for the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for July 2022. While registration for this round of classes is closed, we will be opening up registration again soon for January 2023 classes. Head to tkcchaddock.org to sign up for the waiting list and get notified when registration goes live. So hello everyone, I am here with Dr. Jeannie Howard today. Dr. Howard, thank you so, so much for joining us here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Karen. Thank you for having me. Yes, so you and I go a long ways back because we both spent a lot of our career working in Illinois around issues related to adoption. I wonder if you could share with our listeners, you know, of course I've given a formal bio of you before we started, but how did all of this start for you getting involved in research about adoption? It's an interesting look back. You know, a lot of what happens to us is not intentional. It's uh, accidental, but it turns out to be a happy accident. 
I studied children in foster care early in my career, and I was very interested in how um, children in care maintain connection to their original families, because we know that most children in care go back to their original families. And I was concerned and a colleague of mine were concerned that um, children are abruptly removed. Uh, Their needs are not really addressed related to the trauma and loss they experience. They often have multiple moves in care. And then sometimes they go back to their, often they go back to their families, but there's been a breach. There's been a disconnect. And so initially I was looking at visitation. So how do we maintain connections uh, and attachments between children in foster care and their uh, biological families or their families? And, uh, And so... I, when I started doing this research, I did record reviews with my colleagues, and we found that a number of these kids did not go home. They were, in fact, adopted. And I always wondered what happened to them, because from their records, which is a really rich, deep way to understand certain aspects of a child's life. Um, these kids had a lot going on. And so I always wondered, wow, if, if things were not good enough for them to go home, um, and they experienced moves in care and other difficulties, how they do after adoption. Because back in those days, you may remember, Karen, that we used to think of adoption as the end of the story. Yes. So children, you know, happy ending, children get placed, all is well, close the door. And what we found was um, in, Illinois did a huge push for adoption in the late 90s, huge push for adoption. And we moved tens of thousands of children from foster care into adoption, mostly with their former foster parents or with their relatives. And lo and behold, it wasn't the end of the story. A lot of the time, these families continue to struggle. And uh, we were right in our prediction that some of these children who were adopted would, would struggle. So Illinois, in its wisdom, passed a Family Preservation Act that was meant to provide funds to support families, to improve foster care, and also to provide, and nobody quite knows how this happened, but our law actually says that the state will provide services to families after adoption. So at some point, we were invited by the State Child Welfare Office to establish an institute on adoption at my university, Illinois State University, and to find out how these kids were doing and what their family's needs were. So that's how it all began. Yeah, so there's a lot that you have said in there that you didn't know how that post-adoption part came into it, particularly during a time when, like you were saying, the idea, which I think in some cases still exists, once they have, quote, permanency, which is an interesting word to choose since it's not always the case we know. Um, But, you know, that now they're either returned to their biological family or they're an adoptive family. We've sort of done our job um, to the point that I've talked with some States and they don't even track disruptions. Really? I'm very surprised to hear that because um, well, actually I'm, I guess I'm not surprised to hear that because it's not so easy to do. Yes. Um, when when we kind of come up 
with the language that we used in our studies, we use disruption to mean um, removal of a child from a uh, prospective adoptive home prior to finalization. And um, we, we I, I can't remember what other terms we used after it was finalized, but it's really hard in most states for a child to come back. You know, most states say you have all the obligations of a parent as if you were born, if the child were born to you. So you can't, you know, too bad for you. Um, so Illinois was, so I think maybe the tracking issue, the dissolution is what we called it after adoption. It's not so easy to do. I guess the only way you would know in a systematic way is if the uh, adoption subsidy were changed. So most families who adopted children from foster care, at least in Illinois, received subsidies. And so a change in subsidy would trigger it. But I don't think there is a good system for tracking it. Mm -hmm. And um, in Illinois, we, we made that attempt. But I think in many states, there's no good way to know. So I think the issue of... Um, you know, replacement of children coming back into the system. I think it's real, it's hard to, to capture it sometimes. There's no easy way. Um, there's no systematic way to know how many of these adoptions fail in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so you were being tasked with starting this adoption institute at the university how did you know where to start or what, what, I mean, what were you thinking at the time was going to be the best way to set this up? Well, we had a lot of guidance from our state child welfare director. My colleague, Susan Smith and I were the co-directors of this organization and they basically, they were our primary funder, not our sole funder, but they had a lot of questions they want answered. So that that helped us begin. But it was a wonderful experience, Karen, because not only did we study children and families who'd been adopted through the child welfare system, but our system in Illinois allowed any adoptive family to receive support. So <laughs> families who adopted infants who later had, they later had issues in their families, families who adopted internationally, all of them were eligible, although the primary purpose was to serve children adopted from foster care. The, um, the other kinds of families were allowed in as well. And the department wanted to know how to keep kids from coming back into the system. How do we keep these families strong? How do we address? Because what we learned over the course of our research was that these families on average had had their kids in their homes over nine years before they came to the point of saying, I've had it, or I don't know what to do, or help me. So it was not that soon after adoption, for the most part, these uh, family issues emerged, that, or they may have been there, but they, as the child grew, and sometimes as the child became physically larger, um, the problems often grew. So the state directed us in many ways in helping us figure out how families were doing. And one of the first things we did was a, a huge study. I mean, it was, I think, around 1,400 families. Well, we basically sent out to everybody who received a subsidy in the state of Illinois, or a sample of everybody who received a subsidy in the state of Illinois, um, sent out surveys and we received over 1,300 responses. And from then, them, we learned a great deal about how complicated it could be um, many years after the fact. And that then began to guide the development of services across the state of Illinois 
to strengthen adoptive families. So that was like a qualitative study of what is needed or an assessment or, or what, how, how, what would you call it? Was, it was really a quantitative study, although we added a number of, I, I'm a qualitative researcher primarily, and so we added a number of open-ended questions that okay. were really okay. revealing. So it was a combination. We embedded okay. some we embedded some standardized instruments in the survey, including the behavior problem index, which illustrated to us that a lot of these families had children with very high ratings in child behavior problems. And we all, but we also included um, open-ended questions where families could talk about in more quality in qualitative terms, the struggles that they had. And those were often very revealing. So yes. the combination, the combination of um, quantitative uh, data and qualitative data really gave us a rich understanding of the families that responded to us. And 1300, that's a lot of responses. It is a lot of responses, particularly when you realize that there were there are, you know there are a number of barriers to people participating um, and you know there was a lengthy survey and they had to take a lot of time to fill it out and they had to answer some hard questions including one of the questions we asked was given knowing everything you now know would you have adopted if, if you could have known everything you now know would you have adopted this child and that's a very painful question for parents to answer. Um, so there was a combination of reasons for people not to do it. It was long, it was, um, it was painful. And so we were delighted that we got as many responses as we did. And I can imagine listeners are really wondering what, are some of the main themes that came out of that or some of the main things that you learned from that that helped you guide what needed to be developed? There were many things. Uh, I, it's, it was just actually fascinating. Uh, and parents were, I think, quite honest. And from their, um, you know, they would often say in the open-ended questions, boy, this is difficult or I realize how much we've been struggling, kind of like I kept it down, I tamped it down, but now I doing this survey helps me understand that our family is really struggling. We found a number of things that were, I think, useful to the state in developing its response to families after adoption. Um, one of them was that children who had sexual abuse prior to adoption were at much greater risk for higher, we kind of use as our, our measure, uh, high scores on the behavior problem index. That were the, the list of behaviors that families responded to. And, and clearly there was a correlation between very high scores on the behavior problem index and families saying, I'm overloaded, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Or I would, I, I now knowing what I now know, I would not have adopted this child or I would give, a, I would have given a lot more serious thought to it. Um, so that one of the issues was uh, one of the predictors was uh, childhood sexual abuse. One, another predictor was exposure to alcohol in utero. And remember, most many of these parents may not even have known that that was the case. I mean, we, we don't always know. Um, and so that, that the fact that a number of parents identified this in their children 
um, and that was associated with a higher behavior problem score um, was important to us. Um, we also learned that um, that boys <laughs> had higher behavior problem scores than girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I think that the and another big factor in predicting a number of things about parents ability to hang in there was the extent to which they felt prepared for adoption. As I said, a lot of the our, the vast majority of, of the people in our study uh, were foster parents who had the child in their care and then adopted. That was not all of them. We had matched adoptions as well. But um majority were were foster parents who adopted a child that was already in their home. And so I think the assumption sometimes was by the those preparing the family, well, they know this kid, they've had this kid, they can manage this kid. And what the families uh, told us was, well, not so much. (laughs) We didn't always know uh, enough about the child's history. We didn't know what profound neglect of a child in early years might lead to when that child was 12 or 13, or we didn't know what a child's history of sexual abuse might mean for that child later as well. So um, even though they were familiar with the child and somewhat familiar with the child's history, um, they still were not ready. Uh, Those many of them said that they they were not ready for what was going to happen down the road. And so you know, adopting a six-year-old is very different from parenting a 16-year-old. And the average age of children in our study was, I think, over 12. And kids had been in their homes for a number of years. So families were hitting hitting up against something later, is what we discovered. And that whatever preparation they received when their children were little, or maybe didn't receive, it was inadequate, according to many of our parents. And the fact that they were on their own. Um, you know, the idea again back then was adopt, be happy, leave us alone. <laughs> and um, what our state did, what Illinois did, which I think is immensely important and I wish was, um, you know, repeated across the country, is they started providing not only the subsidy, but they started providing services to struggling families after adoption. And I think that was a hugely important thing for lots of struggling families. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm so excited about what we've gotten to talk about so far with this. And one of the things that comes to mind as you were talking is this thought that adoption is a lifelong process. Rather, Yes. And that, the families, the children, adolescents are going to need help across their lifespan rather than, okay, you know, we, we hit a gavel in court and, you know, now is the day and the child is now yours and go drive into the sunset, so to speak. And I think a lot of families actually hoped for that as well. It wasn't just, you know, the expectation from the child welfare system, but a lot of families thought, okay, now we have permanence, everything will settle down, it's all good from here. And so I think a lot of their expectations were jarred as well as time went on. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't merely that the state, 
you know, waved them off. Um, but that they wanted that. They wanted to be parents free from state intervention. And then uh, things became much more difficult. Karen, I wanted to add one thing about a predictor of child behavior problems in our first study. And that was key as we learned, as we continue to study these children and families over the years. One of the other predictors of whether a child would have a high behavior problem score and also whether the the families were rethinking adoption was the child's ability to give and receive affection, which is kind of a, a bit of a, a proxy for attachment, I think. And families where the child could not or struggle to give or receive affection were also at high risk for um, considering ending the adoption or struggling mightily. And Again, we didn't have a good way to, to, uh, to study attachment in these families. But when we looked at that as our proxy, that was another important predictor of whether the family was really struggling. Parents need to get affection from their children. They need to be able to give affection to their children that is welcomed. And some of our kids really struggled with that. Yeah, another thing that comes to my mind with that is you could have had parents that were struggled with that even coming into the adoption. Right, and I think it's clear that when we're preparing families for adoption, we rarely look at the parents' traumatic history, loss history, attachment style. Um, there are a number of things that we don't we don't think about or mm -hmm. consider as fully as we might in ways that might let us better prepare families. I think with foster care, we're so eager to get the kid into a permanent home that sometimes we don't fully consider all of the issues on the parent side, which might play into how this family develops. So Dr. Howard, I think what you just said about that parent piece is so important. And I am hoping, you know, as time has gone on, we've learned more about that and understood more of that and are considering that as, as we look at what's going on in these relationships between adoptive parents and their children. Well, listeners, I am really looking forward to the next part of this conversation where we are going to talk about, okay, you got some of this information, you got some of this understanding, what are the services that developed and how did they help? So please join us next week for part two with Dr. Jeannie Howard speaking about her adoption research. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.